The Spin-Off Podcast Network. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited and, of course, past performance does not guarantee future returns. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. Tenakoto Katoa, my name is Toby Manhar. It's just before 11 on Wednesday morning on the 2nd of March, and uh, we're just entering the fourth week of occupation at Parliament. And it's been a busy morning there. There have been hundreds of policemen, even in riot gear, moving into the area, moving against the protesters around the grounds. There's been pepper spray, there's a chopper in the air. We have a very special guest on our podcast this week, uh, Justin Giovanetti, our political editor at the Press Gallery in Wellington. Thanks for joining us, Justin, in place of Ben today. What are you, what's happening there this morning? What have you seen? What's going on? Yeah, it's been a pretty busy morning. So I kind of was walking up to the, uh, to the Parliament grounds uh, this morning and there was a guy holding up a traffic cone, just kind of projecting down Lambton Quay, asking Wellingtonians to come and protect the, the women and, and children at the protest site, just saying, you know, we, we, we need you all mm. right now. And uh, it was the whole thing for the last four weeks about this protest is every time something happens, something almost equal and opposite happens. So pretty much just after that guy did that, a lady stopped her car, rolled down the window and just yelled um, at, happily at the police, thanking them for being there and thanking them for finally doing this, mm. uh, which I thought, you know, was the perfect kind of way for me to start my morning today. How long is it going to take? I mean, we don't know is the short answer, but it's it's. So far, they appear to be working on the perimeter of the grounds rather than attempting to go into the grounds themselves, right? They're dismantling the gazebos and the tents and pushing back in the streets around Parliament. Yeah, so it seems like they're kind of going on the northern end right now and just taking kind of towing the cars away behind uh, like a police line that's been created. Um, I think there was some reports this morning of pepper spray. I haven't had any myself, but I think I, I just wrote something kind of Funny about that, where it was just like after two years of, of the of the pandemic, I got a big whiff of what I think was pepper spray, and I just thought it was hand sanitizer, um, which <laughs> my brain is in a you know pandemic place right now. Uh, but yeah, so there, there's a little bit of of towing that has started. I mean, it, it does certainly feel different than in the past. You kind of don't want to jump to say that this is going to be the the end of things. There was that point kind of earlier on, one of the first days where it seemed like. You know, the police were going to do something, and then all of a sudden, they just booked it. Um, yeah. But now they're they're towing. I think that, uh, within the first hour or two, there was about 60 arrests. Um, yeah. And they've made it fairly clear to the protesters, you know, that that they don't want them there. I mean, what, one thing I can certainly say is, is I was looking at the protests yesterday evening, and it was small. 
You know, if you take away right. all the cars and the tents and the gazebos yeah. and the camping gear, there was maybe, you know, 150, 200 people. I mean, by parliamentary standards, that, that doesn't even begin to fill up like a quarter of, a, of the forecourt. So right. it, it's, it, I think it's, I have no idea why the police decided at, at, you know, the crack of dawn to move in, but maybe they're just kind of seeing what's been going on over the last couple of days and have decided that this is really now down to that kind of core, that, mm-hmm. that those final people, those ones who just will not leave uh, until uh, this is over. And, you know, one of my uh, colleagues in the press gallery this morning had a nice chat with someone wrapped up in a Canadian flag who's definitely not a Canadian. And, um, <laughs> and uh, she'd been there since the first day. So, you know, that's it's 23 days of Wellington wind and rain. You know, that, that is dedication to, uh, to a cause. Yeah. Um, Justin, can I ask what of the, of the people that are still there, what sort of um, groups are they? It's lots of different groups, right? Um, I mean, I kind of have some of them I saw last year at some of, of the, the protests, uh, those kind of first like anti-mandate protests. Um, it, it's hard to tell because they don't, you know, it's not like they wear uniforms or, or kind of badges or anything. But mm. you, you definitely get a sense that, you know, this isn't just kind of like the soft you know, we, we just don't like mandates kind of group. Um, mm. And you can see sort of that in some of the rhetoric of the signage that's kind of gone up even in the, in the last couple of days. I think, you know, they've, they've kind of circled the, they circled the, the uh, forecourt with like little plastic tombstones and some pretty clear like anti-vax messaging that, yeah. you know, the vaccines are killing hundreds of people. So, yeah. I mean, throughout this whole protest, there's been that kind of odd thing where there's been quite a, a dichotomy between what they're saying and what their their signage and their kind of propaganda says. Um, at this, but yeah, like yesterday, it just kind of see a lot of the people who were there were just kind of just sitting on like camping chairs, you know, just kind of waiting for the sausage sizzle. So mm-hmm. <laughs> I think they're kind of just people who really don't like COVID rules and restrictions. And, I, I, and I'm sure that's a question Toby kind of wants to get to is what kind of terminology do you use to describe this? You know, and I've, it's something I've struggled with myself. And I think kind of the best I can tell you is, is who's here? It's kind of like a, a group of anti-everything at this point. Do you think it's possible that some of them are just like people who really love camping over summer and are actually <laughs> protesting the start of winter? It's that's I mean that's, that's certainly possible, but then why would they set up you know nice toilets and and showers? Mm-hmm. I mean you don't mm-hmm. you don't have toilets and showers when you camp. And mm-hmm. if you were planning to do that, um, whether you would travel from around the country to Wellington to make that point is highly unlikely. I would have thought True. we there were um, there were there were there were more reports this morning. We've heard them all the way through, but basically uh, uh, stuff camera crew being hounded off the premises by group of people who were telling them uh, in no uncertain terms that they would be hanged. Um, this is something that is sometimes has been dismissed by uh, some observers as a tiny fringe element. I don't know. Look, I have not viewed it with my own eyes, but I have watched a lot of the digital communications as they've unraveled, and it's a very, very noisy noisy element. I'm not suggesting it's the majority, but it does create a question, doesn't it, Annabelle Lee Matha, which is, have we been calling it correctly an anti-mandate protest or is it something else? Like, what are we, what is, I mean, it's an occupation now, but what is it? Is there, how, how have you kind of grappled with the terminology to use? Well, it, it seems now like it's just become a mob, right? just a, 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 a whole lot of people with a, a whole different 
cope up as some of them really dangerous and insidious and other people who just appear to be kind of alienated and lonely and looking for a for a cause but I think loosely speaking that's how how you can break it down but the impression that I get is that you know most New Zealanders are pretty sick of it and while there may have been some empathy towards the idea of those protesting against the mandates who may have lost their jobs at the beginning, I think by and large people's patience have worn pretty thin, particularly now that the government has signalled um, that, that the you know an end to the mandates will be coming sometime in the in the not too distant future. Justin, can I ask you, um, in in out there today, have you seen at all Ben Thomas? Have you seen any sign of Ben Thomas? No idea where he is. Have you seen any zorbs? I have not seen any, any zorbs. zorbs in the. Okay, it's hard to tell with all the masks on, though. Maybe he's wearing a wig. No one would ever find him. He could be on either side. He could be. He could be anywhere, really. Um, it's uh, no one knows where he is. If anyone has seen Ben Thomas, please um, let us know immediately. Quickly on housekeeping. Thanks to spinoff members for uh, keeping the show on the road, and uh, we owe everything to you. We wouldn't be able to do any of our coverage of this protest of COVID-19 without you. And thanks also to Tiahe Butler, who has got this Zoom podcast up and running. Uh, we haven't done it for a little while. It's just like old time's sake. Uh, Justin, can I also say, this is important, you look like you're in an underground bunker. I don't, I don't, mm. I don't, know, I don't know what's going on there. Where are you? So I'm in, uh, there's, there's this small recording studio in the press gallery, but because most parliamentary staff were told not to come to work today, uh-huh. uh, there's no one to turn the lights on. So I am in a, I'm in a windowless dark room uh, be, where the only uh, light is I actually borrowed a table lamp uh-huh. from Newsroom. Okay. Thank you, Newsroom. Oh, thank you, Newsroom. Um, it's very Peter Arnett vibes, and I'm totally here for it. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Whereas you and I, Annabelle, both have kind of children's muck on the walls behind us yeah. um, in our suburban homes. Um, let's talk a bit about the political response to what's been going on, this occupation of Parliament, which is now ticked over three weeks into a fourth week. Will it still be there tomorrow? We don't know. But one of the questions, Annabelle, I guess, is did Labour get it right at the start? Was there an opportunity there for Jacinda Ardern to say, I know you've had to make sacrifices. I know it's been hard. We did not do this lightly. Here's why we did it, rather than going immediately, this is an unlawful activity, go home. To be fair, I feel like that's the sentiment that was conveyed over and over and over again at the one o'clock presses um, mm. since the mm. vaccination rollout started. And when you when you turn up to Wellington with some of your, like, your homie alt-right neo-Nazi white supremacist friends, I don't think that leaves the government very much room at all Mm. to negotiate, particularly when you're talking about, you know, hanging politicians and journalists. So with this group, there's probably not a lot that can be said by a politician that's going to change their views. Mm. So I'm I'm not convinced. And, And I think too, the announcements last week show that this isn't really about mandates because if it was, um, we would have seen the occupation start to dissipate. So I think 
I don't think that the government has really misplayed anything here. I think that that's a message that would have fallen on deaf ears anyway. There was, a, you sent a photo uh, yesterday, Justin, uh, taken from within Parliament that showed a lot of the signs. And one of the signs had very clearly towards the middle, it said, um, uh, open the Auckland borders now, <laughs> which I thought was an interesting demand. And maybe there was some some area for negotiation <laughs> negotiating there. But just again, on still on the on on the Prime Minister Justin, sort of the other side of that is you know what happened in the South Island that Mikey Sherman documented so compellingly for uh, TVNZ, where there were protesters that barged into a school. Really terrifying Tamariki, clearly. Uh, other around the country, a sort of different, seems to me, a different approach from some of the groups that are affiliated with this broader movement. It feels like a kind of new and poisonous form of protest. Mm. Mm. Yeah, the local paper in Wairapa actually had a story on the weekend just about all the death threats that uh, Kieran McNulty has been facing and just kind of uh-huh. talking about as as the labor uh, whip, pretty sure he's the whip now, uh, yeah. just all of the, uh, how much extra work labor has had to put into kind of securing the offices in the, in the homes of MPs. I mean, you and I have talked about this in the past and there was certainly a sense maybe last year that, you know, this mm-hmm. was something that you saw kind of overseas. I, I think it's pretty clear to everyone now that that this is no longer just a foreign thing. That mm. there are there are a lot of people who are quite angry with their politicians, and and not just in a way that they where they just want to be disagreeable, but in a, in a way in which they have demands and they want those demands to be met. Mm. Um, I have to agree with Annabelle. I mean, I don't see what the government could have done differently with this protest. Uh, you know, they could have gone out to the forecourt and just stood there. And for all the the claims over the last month that they would have that these protesters would have just left, I mean, there's there's no indication that that's what would have happened. That mm-hmm. what would have probably happened was an hours long harangue where they would have been told, you know, that you're murdering children, um, mm-hmm. that you're doing these horrific things to us, and uh, you know, on the on the nice end, it would be end all COVID restrictions and just pretend the pandemic doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. And on the the meaner end, it would be you know we want to arrest you and and hang you from the nearest tree. So. Mm-hmm. I just don't understand these people who who are of the opinion that that this is just this could be solved with a cup of tea. You know, anyone who says that and has spent more than ten minutes at this protest, I think is yeah. being quite disingenuous. You know, just on the the thing that the thing that happened at Tuahiwi, my toa, my great grandmother Ruka Tehakamatua Piha Hawaii, she was born at Tuahiwi with along with all of her siblings mm-hmm. and all of her brothers died in infancy and childhood of tuberculosis. And if there was anything my poa and toa could have done to keep their tamariki alive, if there was a vaccine available then, they would have moved heaven and earth to get it. So, you know, to see those scenes there was a really bitter, pody thing for me to watch, thinking about just the hubris of this generation who have enjoyed the benefits of vaccines compared mm. to what their kaumatua and their tūpuna went through. And the the vitriol being flung at the Prime Minister, you know, being accused of mass murder. Like, I'm not a, a Labour cheerleader. I like to think I'm an equal opportunity hater aid. But, mm. um, but the level of vitriol for, for a leader who has produced, I mean, you can't argue with the numbers, like New Zealand's death toll 
is the thing of envy. So to hear her being screamed at that she's murdering people and just the the sexism and misogyny and hatred is really deeply disturbing, mm. I have to say. You don't need to pull very hard on the strings that begin with in the mandates now to encounter misogyny, to encounter homophobia, to encounter mm. anti-Semitism, to encounter some pretty brainworm shit, to encounter mm. the World Agenda 2030, to encounter transhumanism, to encounter microchips. They're trying to depopulate the planet. And that's the problem we face, right? Like if it was simply a protest for in the mandates now, our lives have been disrupted in ways that we don't think are fair or reasonable, that our rights have been impinged in this fashion, that would be one thing. But it's, as you say, Justin, to anyone who spends more than 10 minutes actually looking hard on the grounds or looking hard on the kind of digital undergrowth on which those grounds now sit, which is a real thing, as we know, to our cost from real things that have happened in New Zealand, including March 15. It's more than that. Mm. What about the opposition? Chris Luxon and David Seymour and the other parties in Parliament broadly stood together. No one went out there at first. Christopher Luxon took an interesting approach. A few days later, Justin, he wrote an op-ed for the Herald and delivered a speech, a sort of down-the-barrel speech from an Auckland studio, which which was sort of smart, I think, to show that kind of level of here I am addressing a serious issue. I wasn't so convinced, though, by the message that he was putting forward, which was about a New Zealand divided. And he even used the phrase in the op-ed, if I recall correctly, that a chasm of division was, 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 was being witnessed in the country. And he sort of drew a line between what was playing out at Parliament through to housing, other inequality, and so on and so forth. That didn't go down well with everybody, like Audrey Young, who's you know seen, 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 seen a few rodeos, um, described it as opportunist in the Herald. How did, how did, what did you make of that attempt to frame the issue from Luxon? Yeah, so I was actually supposed to sit down with Luxon this morning, but um, obviously that got punted uh, just until the the security situation. Um, but I mm. was just, I was reading that that speech last night and and I, and I kind of just circled it and, you know, wanted to raise it with him because one of the points he made very early on in that speech was this is a situation entirely of the government's own making. And he was talking about that protest right in, in front of parliament. Mm. I, I don't understand how you could say something like that when we're seeing these protests all over the world. And, you know, certainly mm. there, was, there was one in Ottawa um, there's a freedom convoy or people's convoy or whatever it is in the States um, that's kind of underway right now. Australia. Yeah, yeah, right. Um, so, you know, when you say that, 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 that these divisions were created by the labor government, um, yeah, it, it's a really, part of me just kind of want, wants to ask him, why don't you just go after the, the more, what seems to me at least more logical attack route on the government, which is, you know, their just inability to build anything or really deal with any of the big kind of, issues that mm. need to be dealt with instead of kind of going down this, this road of, of sort of division. Um, mm. yeah, it's, it's, it's an odd way to approach things as well because it's not clear to me if there is a deep kind of societal division. I mean, obviously, there are, there are elements of society that are quite divided and unhappy with what the government's doing, but that doesn't mean it's a division down the middle or anything. So to, to kind of approach it is to say, you know, that Jacinda Ardern has created this, this sort of land of, 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 of two people, it, it just seems kind of 
odd to me. And I know that, you know, yeah, it was the same. Audrey Young just kind of said it was opportunistic. I mean, I don't know if cashing in, if there was maybe a sense two weeks ago or when, when he wrote that speech that, that this protest was sort of going to go another way. Um, I think the most charitable way I'd look at it is that people are fed up. You know, he's, he has correctly kind of identified that people are fed up. Everyone is fed up. I, I completely agree with that. But to then say that, you know, the reason you're fed up is because the government has screwed everything up and, and you know, people are divided with each other. I, I just think that's such a misdiagnosis of the problem. I just think it showed his absolute political naivety. It was a, a rookie move by a rookie political leader, um, completely misreading the mood of the country. Most New Zealanders are fed up to the back teeth with the protest. So, suppose you know, being the, the party of supposed law and order, if anything, you'd expect him to be coming out with a plan for how they would shut the protest down, you know, order in the army, you know, charge people, all, all that kind of stuff. But instead, he's decided to align himself with a group of people whose 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 votes would count for nothing, like just the mass of it. Why would you be siding with a tiny little fraction of new of people who, even if they did vote for you, as a result of it, it wouldn't count for anything anyway? Just the naivety of it really surprised me, and um, and I think that um, most well, I think you know people like Audrey Young called it for what it was, which was you know. Not a great look for him. To, to be to be fair to him, he did stress at, at every turn that he denounced the protest, that he in no way sympathised with 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 their with their approach. But it becomes a difficult dance on a pin sometimes when you are Absolutely. trying to make those connections, doesn't it? Um, mm. I mean, I mean, it seems to me probably the smart thing would be him just just as always, if in doubt, talk about the economy. You know that that just that's that, mm. that's really should be their watchword. Hey, um, David Seymour went to meet some of the protesters in the out in that 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 back alley of um, of backbencher, which which is familiar to some of us. Um, and then sort of in the classic kind of act style, you know, releasing seven seven press statements every hour, they came along, they I, they essentially said, lift all the restrictions now, right? Like, end it all now, which I guess it's the kind of thing you can say if you are not proposing to be the leading party of a government at any point soon. You know, it's the kind of thing you can say and you can pick up some support. But it just struck me, Annabelle, when you've got hospitalisation numbers ballooning, a bizarre thing to say. Mm. I think we're starting to see some pretty desperate acts on on, on the part of, um, of um, minor party leaders. I mean, for me one of the most remarkable sights of last week was Winston Peters wandering through the through the crowd unmasked. Um, this is a guy who, you know, for all eternity has railed against any type of protest, including, you know, Ihu Matau and all sorts of others. So um, I, I think that, that there's some desperate moves being made and it's just miscalculating the mood of the country along with, with the quite important issue that it goes against the expert advice from the medical professionals. Hmm. And, I, I, I mean, again, the same issue with Luxton, just the mass of it doesn't make sense. 
I, I don't understand why people like David Seymour and Winston Peters would be appealing to trying to appeal and curry favour with such a tiny percentage of the New Zealand population. I mean, I think Seymour presumably is, and Luxon too, trying to channel what you talked about, uh, what you both touched on, that fatigue, that exhaustion, that, oh God, not again, mood, which is to say we don't support this group, we, re- we recognise that it does, and that group does in some way reflect a sentiment. And, you know, to be fair, there was a poll. It was a Horizon poll, 520 people on digital panel, so we shouldn't necessarily treat it as gospel. But there was a poll that suggested 3 in 10 New Zealanders supported the process. So whether or not that maps into 3 in 10 people would cast their vote <laughs> in sympathy with the protest is another question, and I'll get that to, to that in a second. The Greens, Justin, have been... Pretty quiet for the most part about about this occupation. If, if I missed, if I missed, Mister Mister Big Speech, if I missed a big statement, no. <laughs> um, you know that was at my year end, just before Christmas. I sat down with the two Green co leaders, and that was one of the questions I asked them: was just where have you where have you two been on COVID? You know, in terms of of dealing with this, the entire country's you know been kind of dealing with this, and you guys have, have been just sort of beavering away in the background on, on your on, on your things, and and they were kind of both taken aback by the question and just kind of like you know talking about how they've been putting forward their ideas and and you know that they were there calling for people to get vaccinated. The last couple of weeks have just sort of been more of the same. I, I mean, I don't know if the Greens just have an inability to get their message out, or if just their message just sort of doesn't resonate with people other than you know. Do the right thing, you know, get vaccinated, get boosted. If you're going to protest, protest, you know, legally. Um, yeah, I don't see them on this. You know, if you I am, if you ask me for what the, the green kind of strategy is for, uh, you know, a post-Omicron wave world, I mean, I have no idea. Um, it's quite clear to me what, you know, David Seymour is. And I just wanted to just touch on that for a moment because I just wanted to say hmm. one of the things with, with ACT that I always kind of try to keep in mind is, you know, a lot of what ACT has called for is likely to happen. Um, mm-hmm. It's not likely to happen now, you know, right while, while we're in the upward kind of surge of, of, the, of, of Omicron. But it's likely to happen, you know, in a month's time, mm-hmm. two months mm-hmm. time, in a couple weeks. And you know that when it happens, ACT is going to put out a press release saying we told you so. Um, and, you know, they've, they've, they've kind of done this throughout uh, COVID where they put forward ideas. And quite often, I think they're reasonable ideas at a certain time. They put them forward and then the government adopts them and then, and then you know, acts as we were there first. So sometimes their timing just seems to be a little off. Well, um, on, that, on, on that note, I would like to demand Christmas uh, in a month's time. And, and when it rolls around, I'll claim that I was well ahead of the pack. Genius. Annabelle, do you have... Uh, any thoughts on the Greens or and or Te Pāti Māori and the, 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 they again have had to navigate a, a kind of a, a sometimes delicate position on this. Yeah, both of them have been pretty quiet and I, I, I don't know why that is. I don't know if it's just because the media aren't particularly interested in talking to them at the moment because um, because you've got other parties saying more outlandish things or doing more outlandish stuff like old, you know, Winston mm. and the maskless Winston. So, mm. yeah, I'm not sure, but, but that um, th- th- I think that that criticism of the Greens is you know, something that we've seen for quite a while now. I'm not sure if it's strategy, if they're just trying to go under the, the radar so they don't appear to be too aligned with, with Labour 
But um, yeah, there was a there was um, what's his name Tiano uh, Tuiono wrote quite a, quite a, a good op-ed for for Staff I think yesterday, which which addressed some of the issues, particularly about um, you know the the role of Maori in the protest, and that's another one that the Māori Party have dealt with. I, I spoke to Debbie Ngāriwapaka for a piece I wrote last week about social cohesion and the protest. And, of course, the Māori Party had 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 come out against mandates and called for the end of mandates, you know, some time ago, towards the end of last year, um, and their argument was that mandates should not be imposed by the state but should be able to be imposed at the local level. Um, and I think, I think that may explain one of the reasons why they've been relatively quiet, because... It is such a febrile situation, and this perhaps explains some of the green strategy anti-party Māori, is that because everyone is so on tenterhooks, on eggshells, it's very hard to sort of put forward an argument that is nuanced or that says, well, we support mm. this part, but we did a little So maybe it makes more sense. <laughs> maybe it's in a way more responsible to step back a bit. The other thing that... Um, I think said, I think the Maori Party kind of got upstaged the other week too by Tariana and, and her interview, didn't right, they? And I, right. I do think I do think that it was remiss of the Maori Party to not come out and and state where their Fakaro and and Tariana's may not mm, align. Yeah, For example, yeah, her concern yeah. around vaccines and. Um, raising questions about whether the the prime minister is a Nazi sympathizer, I think um, that was that was a shocking thing to hear from someone with such mana, right? Yeah, I think that you know she's still a really incredibly influential and much loved figure in Te Ao Māori, and her her words are really meaningful to a lot of people. So I think you know it would have been not a bad thing for them to come out and not to disrespect Tariana at all, but just to point out what their policy differences might be Mm, mm. on those issues. Uh, Annabelle, you mentioned uh, Winston Peters, who was, did a a double, the first double-breasted suit to be seen in Camp Freedom, I think. Um, He's one of a bunch of people who... With some with political ambition, with electoral, some of the people in the in the in the occupation find the idea of the current electoral system, the democracy that we use, abhorrent and would like to overthrow it altogether. But there are also a bunch of people in there who have stood for parliament or plan to stand for parliament at some point in the future. On which point, I would like to propose a quiz. I've counted eight people who have attended the protest or been involved in encouraging it. Um, eight people. I'm going to see if you, how many of them you can get. Do you want to go first, Justin? So this is eight people who... You just need to name one. Just name one. Matt who, King. Matt King. Okay, yeah, he's on the list. Matt King. Annabelle? Oh, God, Toby. Winston Peters, you said before. Those, I'll give oh, you yeah, that Winston one. Winston okay. Peters. What about those like weirdo parties that stood in the last election, like the Outdoors Party and Sue Gray from the Outdoors Party? That's oh, another okay. one. Sue yeah. Gray, thank yeah, you. Yeah. Chantel and Leighton Baker. The Leighton Baker, the leader of the former leader of the the what are they called? The New Conservative Party. That's correct. Is there any of those Destiny Church ones that stood in the last election? Well, Brian Tamaki. I'll give you Brian Tamaki. I'll give you that thank one. You. Um, a few more. You were, you were thinking of well, Claire Deeks as well. Brian, Brian didn't stand, did he? No, no, but oh no, but he's he's he wants to. Oh, yeah. Look, nice. I'm just just yeah. in that orbit, right? Um, Claire Deeks, you were thinking of, who is one of the Voices for Freedom leaders, 
who stood for the one, advance party. One of those the last sweet little, one of those sweet little moms from one of the lovely mumfluencers. Little um, uh, she, her advance party twinned with which other party at the last election? They've also been in, in supporting this protest. The People's Party, led by the People. He hasn't been at the protest, but he has been cheering up. For, come on, you know this blues musician. Oh, Billy Tikaika. Billy yeah. TK. Yep. Um, okay, there's only, I think we've got all except two more on my list, which gets getting quite hard. Former ACT leader, who's been there giving speeches, having a lovely time. Oh, Rodney Hyde. Kind of, Rodney Hyde, having a kind of out-of-body experience. I think he said somewhere that he now feels like the real world is inside the cab and the, <laughs> <laughs> the other world and the weird places out, you know, some, some serious... Uh, he's having a time of it. So beautiful. And one more, mm. one more is someone who used to be a broadcaster who you may not know, but she's oh, talked Liz about Gunn. the need for a need for a for a new friend. Liz Gunn. That's right. That's right. Liz Gunn, who is now just just before just before we began this podcast, I was watching her. She's now anchoring Counterspin, the deranged, Bannon aligned, conspiracy peddling, insurrectionist. Let's try and hang at Nuremberg 2.0, all the politicians. But that is Liz Gunn. You know the one from the sofa with Mike Hosking. It's now, what a journey. What a journey. Well, I mean, the thing is that um, when you're asking before about how it, how it could be described, you know, the, the occupation, like when they're talking about overthrowing a democratically elected government and hanging politicians and stuff, it, it actually starts to look like a coup, doesn't it? I mean, I think that's a reasonably polite way to put the intention for many of them. Genuinely, they want to, they want to dismantle the entire apparatus of government. Mm. They want to literally demolish the beehive, which is described as a symbol of Freemasonism. I think they did have some some aesthetic uh, inspiration there, maybe, although perhaps don't go down that particular hole. But, you know, they want to burn it down. That is what they want to do. Uh, it's it's quite extraordinary. But, look, that, that that you did very well on that quiz, so well done, everybody. The, the, but that's the, the, the purpose for doing that wasn't just the, the sheer sport of it, but because that's a lot of people, right? And... One of the questions I think that we will face is that these lots of people have been radicalised, lots of people, certainly the people that have been taking part physically, would give their votes to a cause that emerged and if, if, if and when it does in the 2023 election. I don't know. What do you think, Justin? Do you think there is a possibility of that group coalescing together or is it just too, is the internecine stuff, as we saw even in the last election, just too strong that the prospect of getting 5%, whether it's the New Conservatives or the Outdoors Party or New Zealand First even, right? Surely it's possible, if not likely, that some political force could make it over that threshold. I would say no, if only just mm. because they've they've just spent a month camping together. And I mean, if S'mores hasn't brought them together, <laughs> um, I don't see how the possibility of getting into Parliament would. But no, but seriously though, I mean that that's been a sign of it. I mean they they send out these releases and it's signed by like five or six organizations at the end. Yeah. Like if they yeah. can't even agree on you know let's fight the police. Um, under one banner, then then how do how are they going to run for for parliament and put together you know a, a program that actually is calling for things? I mean, quite mm. often you know their their kind of propaganda has been fairly smart in terms mm. of kind of reaching out out to the public. Um, mm. Sometimes you know mm. if you if you squint. Um, so I'm, I just don't see how you could bring together all these disparate groups and, and try. But I mean, they certainly will. 
and and I think that's kind of going to be the, the big question for them, right? Is who are the who, someone will try, mm. someone new will try, and it, whether it's going to be one of those those parties that has tried and failed repeatedly, or some kind of new party. I mean, certainly no one has a has come out of this um, as the obvious kind of standard bearer of this group, um, which is kind of almost surprising. You'd think after a month that, you know, someone has emerged. And I don't know if it's just because I'm not on the right TikToks or, or Telegrams, um, but I, I just don't see that kind of central figure who can bring them together. I think the thing with, with movements like this or events like this in terms of them becoming political forces is that timing is everything. And I think that by the time the next election rolls around, mandates will be gone. Um, the wind will have, you know, blown out of the, the sails of this co-papa. So I think it's, you know, if there was yeah. an, an election in a month or two, possibly, um, provided that they were able to keep a lid on the infighting. And we already saw last election, who were the two groups that were going to align and then they had a big bust up. The Advance Party and the People's Party. Yeah, yeah. So, I, you know, I just don't think that they'd be able to stick it out together, you know, for another, what, about 18 months. Um, and I think most people would have probably, life would have, um, by and large, depending on how the pandemic plays out, returned mm. to normal for most people. So I, I would like to think that it's highly unlikely. But there will be some kind of lasting impact in terms of this, this kind of conspiracy theory, disinformation, misinformation mm. kind of approach to politics, mm. approach to society, mm. and, and, and not just in, in coded language either. It, you know, this will be, I fully expect that, you know, in a year and a half, whenever, next year, you know, at the next election, you know, that we, we will actually see political parties standing and just spouting what to the most of, most of New Zealand is just absolute nonsense. Um, and, you know, it's something you see in the U.S. where there are now people in, in, in Congress who are, you know, open QAnon supporters. Um, I kind of, you know, going back to what I was saying earlier, when it comes to, like, violence towards politicians, I just think that these things that up to now we've thought of as someone else's problem, um, I would expect that the next election it will be very clear that this is now a New Zealand issue as well. Mm. Uh, this is Gone by Lunchtime. We will be back in a moment. This has gone by lunchtime. We've been talking about the occupation of Parliament. We're going to talk about Omicron, about Ukraine and other things. But the most important story of the work, Annabelle Lee Mather, was at the TV Awards last night. The Hui won all the awards. Won uh, Best Current Affairs Programme, like the big one. Won, won Best Māori, La- Māori, Māori Issues, whatever awards that award. What's that category? Māori Programme. Best Māori, Māori Programme. Yeah, well, Māori Māori best, Māori 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 Māori. best Comedy. Best Drama. Best mm-hmm. sci-fi. What did you? Amazing. <laughs> what an effort. Yeah, that's a yeah, real big thank deal. You. Did you? Did you? Um, and very well deserved. So I'm. I'm really thrilled for you and the whole team there. But you didn't get to have a big celebration because it was virtual. It was yeah. It was a virtual online awards. But I had just done Pepuere Maroke. You know how there's Dry July. I oh. invented. I invented Dry February. Pepuere Maroke because it's the shortest month of the year, so I thought it would give me a better a better chance of getting there. So yesterday was the end of Pepuere Maroke, so I had a couple of gin and tonics to celebrate, oh. which was very nice. Well deserved, fantastic, and it's 
It's a crazy time in Auckland, more so than the rest of the country, but it's rippling through the rest of the country. The wave here is of Omicron is really, really marked and unavoidable. And I don't know about you, Annabelle, but I mean, I've got a, I've got a good friend who's really sick at the moment at home. Mm. I've got, uh, I mean, I, I can't literally cannot count the number of people I know who are either positive or are household contacts and therefore affected. Um, mm. Are you? I mean, it is it is everywhere now, right? Is that what you're experiencing? Yeah, it's everywhere. Like heaps of my my friends have got. Um, Omicron, either they're infected themselves or their tamariki have it, you know, friends in Gisborne, friends in Auckland, friends in Northland. Um, yeah, it's absolutely rampant and everywhere and, you know, we've had to, we've kind of swung in and out of isolation in our household too because one of my kids was considered a close contact and mm. then we moved to phase three and she was invited back to school again and then we're back into being uh, isolation again because we got a, an old PCR test back from a, from another one of my kids who was isolating down the line mm. um, who has, you know, got a, a positive COVID test but has done numerous um, negative rats tests since. So, yeah, we're all stuck at home and it's just a really difficult, uncertain time because it just becomes impossible to plan for anything. You know, mahi becomes challenging, keeping children entertained becomes challenging. And, you know, we're lucky. We, we are able to buy kai when we need it. We don't have to worry about paying the power bill. So I can only imagine how challenging the Omicron surge is going to be for a lot of whānau who, who, who aren't well resourced. There is a real equity issue there, isn't there? Because now we uh, don't have that kind of blanket determination. It's more personal responsibility. So for example, they were thinking of introducing when they initially announced this um, phase system, household-like contacts, but they scrapped that. Um, you asked about that at the press conference, Justin, specifically, but it does mean that you have to, lots of families who are lucky enough to make an assessment, which which is I or one of my family had continuous ongoing contact with somebody. It wasn't a household contact, but you know what? We're just going to work from home and stay at home and keep the kids home. Not everyone has the luxury of doing that, do they? Mm. Yeah, it was one of the questions put to Chris Hipkins, too, about schools. Uh-huh. And, and kids there and just where parents are now in this situation where they need to choose whether or not to send their kid to the to the classroom where there's been one or two or three confirmed cases or if they want to keep that you know their, their kid at home and he was asked about that just how incredibly unfair that is for parents who have to make that determination because for some parents it's easy and for for some I mean you're talking about someone needing to take time off work you know mm-hmm. on paid mm-hmm. and his answer was pretty much you know, it is unfair to raise kids. Um, you know that this is the system that we that we have, and and that this this challenge wouldn't be new to to any parent, which I think was a somewhat unsatisfactory answer. But you know, kind of showed the government's thinking on this, which is 
yeah, that this the unfairness is just part of the system now. And, you know, we just kind of have to ride out the next couple of weeks. And the thing too is like with Māori and Pacifica communities being particularly vulnerable and overrepresented, like this is going to have generational impacts, like the amount of time that kids are having to take off kura. And I mean, it was bad enough in lockdown, but at least in lockdown, everyone's in the same, like everyone has to stay home. Everyone's kids don't get to go to school and there's online learning and all of that. But now it's like school just continues without those students and those students are getting left further and further behind. I mean, lockdown's hard, but at least everyone's kind of in the same boat. There's a, you know, there's a sense of communion and lockdown, but, but the way that it is now, it's really hard because you're going to have your your cans and your can-dos, your haves and your have-nots, and it, it just is going to make, um, yeah, life a lot more difficult for tamariki that it have already been, you know, left behind as a yeah. result of the earlier lockdowns. One of the other realities we've faced as everything has changed so incredibly quickly is suddenly rats are everywhere, um, I had one the other morning, just about everyone suddenly had one before, whereas just a few days ago they were completely completely out of bounds really. Um, mm. And we had Justin yesterday, probably the closest thing we'll get to a mayor culpa from Ashley Bloomfield, the Director General of Health, because we had been assured that the PCR capacity was, I can't remember the numbers, but it was something like 60,000 a day or something. And 58,000 a day was the baseline, but we could surge to 77,000 for a week if needed. Right, right. And and that was that was reassuring. And it turned out that wasn't the case at all. And the thing that kind of annoyed me in the presentation yesterday, the return of the 1pm briefing yesterday, was not just that we'd sent 9,000 PCR samples to Queensland, but I don't know that we got this kind of explanation about how they use, that they use pool testing, and that meant that they had to the, they could no longer once the positivity rate got higher. And it's like that is not a new thing. Everybody knew that. People were writing about that. People were talking about that a month ago. So I feel I felt a little bit patronised, I guess, and and I don't think that was a satisfactory explanation. And mm. I don't know. I mean, I mean, they have accepted that they got it wrong. So maybe that's good and maybe I should just shut up. But do you think it's acceptable? Well, I don't think they've accepted they got it wrong. I think Ashley Bloomfield accepted he got it wrong. Mm. I think the prime minister was asked whether she got it wrong. And she said errors were made and then kind of tossed to, to well, she wasn't, you know, he was up at the Ministry of Health. She well, I mean, you don't expect, you don't necessarily expect her or Hipkins to be getting the calculator out themselves. That's all they can rely on, to be fair, isn't it? The assurances from the Ministry of Health. And we've sort of seen that before, haven't we, with testing of frontline workers, for example. Mm. Yeah, I mean, this, I was actually looking through our uh, photo archive yesterday, and we have a lot of pictures of sad Ashley Bloomfield from 2020, where right. the then Minister of, of Health kind of blamed him yeah. uh, while he was standing beside him. So, you know, at least it, it didn't happen like that yesterday. <clears throat> I mean, the thought that I had was just that in late January, right when the government got back from, from holiday and was really kind of started realizing, you know, oh shit, Omicron's here. Mm. Um, and they put out all of these, these, 
these kind of they, they had these events and they put out these press releases and the whole idea was we're ready for this we're prepared for this and one of them where I got those figures from earlier was from Asha Verrill where you know the minister was willing to stand up there big smile on the face and just say you know that the testing capacity is ready you had uh, you had uh, Andrew Little talk about how there's hundreds and hundreds of ICU beds that are total we're totally ready we're totally fine mm. and then you know last week. I think it was fairly clear to everyone paying attention that obviously something was wrong with the PCR system because we were only, you know, we're half, we're pretty much just over half of what they told us would be, you know, a regular day. And we're nowhere near where our surge should be. And and people were talking about how tests were taking days and days, like a week to come back. Mm. Um, So, yeah, I mean... I guess it was a case where the ministers were very happy to stand up and, and talk about how, uh, you know, the, the, their departments were ready. But when it was clear that they weren't, Ashley Bloomfield was sort of the only person standing in front of a microphone, you know? Should we add, I suppose we should, Annabelle, it's two years now since the first cases were recorded in New Zealand. So should we, in fairness, observe that overall the place we're in notwithstanding the bumps along the road, we'd take it over many other parts, most other parts of the world. Definitely. I mean, you you just have to read the numbers to know that we've probably had the best COVID response in the world. But I, I do feel sad that we've we kind of surrendered to Omicron and I do wonder what would have happened if we'd brought in some guidelines sooner about, you know, trying to keep it out and perhaps um, stopping flights from from countries where there was where Omicron was sort of coming in from. I mean, we saw those cases at the border start to surge, didn't we? And it was only a matter of time. But you know, when you're reading about twenty thousand positive cases, it's pretty pretty heartbreaking. Uh, the, the the last subject we're going to cover today is Ukraine, and we're now I don't know how many days, nearly a week, I suppose, into the. Russian invasion of Ukraine. There was a very long build-up to that, as everyone knows, and much will they, won't they. And it turns out that Putin did, and his uh, an invasion is underway into Ukraine and is not going as well as he had planned, evidently, despite the fact they had uh, pre-cooked a story on Novosti, which was um, announcing the that they had taken you taken Kiev but anyway I won't go on about that because as you know this is not a geopolitics podcast this is an epidemiologist podcast mm. but we can talk Justin about the New Zealand response um, which you've watched there's some extent to which New Zealand's hands are tied in terms of the sanctions that can be unilaterally enforced can you can you can you explain what that is sure. So New Zealand doesn't have an independent or autonomous sanctions regime, right? So we, we have no way to, to do what a lot of the other countries are doing in terms of cutting economic ties or, or trying to punish the Russians that way. The way that New Zealand's always done it is that we use the sanctions that are passed by the UN Security Council or, or mm. kind of the UN more broadly, which kind of fits with the kind of New Zealand approach to foreign affairs where we're going to do a multilateral kind of approach. We're going to do what all the other countries are going to do. The UN's approved it, so obviously it's the right thing to do. Um, the problem, of course, is that there are countries that have a veto on the Security Council, one of which is Russia. Um, mm. So it means that, you know, more or less New Zealand can't do these things unless Russia agrees to it. Now, Jerry Brownlee has had a bee in his bonnet for quite some time where he wants to have 
this kind of, of sanctions regime. So, you know, National has it ready. To, has he got a bill in the tin? Has he got a bill in the member's tin? Is that right? I'm pretty sure he, he yes, I'm pretty sure. I mean, it's it's the only thing I've heard Jerry Brownlee talk about for like the last two years. So yeah. this far predates, <laughs> predates yeah, yeah. the current kind of situation. Um, I could pull it up, but I'm fairly sure it is. Um, but anyway, so there's been, you know, New Zealand hasn't not acted despite that. And so we've, we've seen New Zealand companies kind of act without the, the government needing to tell them to. So there's lots of KiwiSaver uh, investment funds that have just started dropping kind of the, the Russian investments. I mean, in some ways, that's sort of what, what a sanction regime would do. Mm. Um, Fonterra over the weekend said they wouldn't act until the UN told them to. And then on Monday, they said, oops, actually, we will stop sending uh, butter to one of our largest purchasers of butter, which is Russia. Although in that case, I think it's because they realized that because Russia's banks no longer can work with the rest of the world, that the they Russians might not pay them um, <laughs> or might try to pay them with ladas um, like they did apparently in the 80s. But yeah, so I mean there was, there was a call yesterday in, in parliament where everyone was united you know, hmm. across all the parties more or less in terms of, of the need to support Ukraine, denounce Russia, condemn Vladimir Putin. Um, and you, know, you had the... Uh, you had the prime minister saying, you know, Slava Ukraini, you know, like the, the Ukrainian kind of, you know, war cry in, the, in parliament. Mm. Um, but then you also had both ACT and National saying, you know, let's fast track this, this autonomous sanctions legislation. Let's pass it today. Let's pass it tomorrow, which parliament could do. Um, and then, you, you know, you had Labor saying, you know, we're working on it. So mm. I, I'm not sure what's going to come out of that. Um, you know, we're, we're kind of, we, we've been back. This is the second day that Parliament's been back. So it, it might kind of still happen this week. The, the New Zealand Parliament has the incredible ability to pass a law uh, within, you know, just a couple hours. So yeah. it's totally doable. And it now has the ability to beam in even COVID-positive ministers onto a big screen now that it's got the virtual element, which it's operating under very strange circumstances. The other op- option that is open to New Zealand, which hasn't been affected yet, would be to uh, throw out the, the Russian ambassador. Do you think that New Zealand has done enough? Annabelle, what do you make of the response to what's going on? Um, I watched Nanaya's speech to the UN this morning, which I thought was um, was really good and interesting to see her using such strong language. I just think that, you know, we're a small country, but we're principled and we have a really amazing track record. And I think that this could actually be Jacinda's real nuclear-free moment. And I would love to see the Prime Minister call on all world leaders um, to denuclearize and get them to sign up to it. And I just think that would be a really awesome thing to actively try and seek peace and, uh, and, and a legacy for our tamariki as well. And it's, it's in our whakapapa. We lead the way on this stuff. Thank you, Adabeli Mather. Uh, thank you, Justin Giovanetti. I'm going to wind it up there because uh, you need to go, Justin, and have a nice bath full of milk, wash out any um, traces of either pepper spray or COVID, and uh, we all need to crack on. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, T.I. here for making this work. Thanks, members. And um, Ben, just call Ben. Please call Ben. Ben. Miss you, Ben. Love you, Ben. But you were great, Justin. I mean, you were, you were that's amazing, not, that's, Justin. You're, you're incredible. Uh, I don't have Ben's infectious laughter.
Kia ora e te iwi, te ai he Butler here, podcast manager at The Spin-Off. If you enjoy listening to our podcasts, consider supporting our mahi by signing up to become a Spin-Off member at thespinoff.co.nz slash donate. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.